0: Sponsored by Expressway. With my Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations.
1: Hello. Welcome to the second series of Irish GenPod. My name is Paul Gorry and during the series, I'm chatting with people who are involved in various ways in Irish genealogy. Today, I'm again in my hometown of Glass in a quiet location to chat with my old friend and colleague, Stephen Smirrell. Stephen has worked in genealogy professionally for decades. He has held credentials from accredited genealogists Ireland for over 30 years. He's a past president of AGI, which is accredited genealogists Ireland, and the current chairman of the Irish Genealogical Research Society. Welcome to Irish Gen Pod, Stephen. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Yeah, and I'm, I, you're back in Balting glass. I'm delighted to have you here. It's a pity that um, you don't get here too often. No. Okay, um, knowing your work as I do, I can safely say that you're the most knowledgeable Irish genealogist, amateur or professional, on the planet. I think that's something that very few people realise. Yeah, don't look at me like that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, <laughs> it's true. I'm shocked to hear that, Paul. I mean, I've got the wide knowledge. I'll admit that, but I'm not quite sure that's well, quite uh, that. I am. Well, I am perfectly sure. I, I, I've known that for many yeah. years. Um. Most people gravitate to family history in middle age or later in life. And very few people develop a passion for the subject in childhood. What age were you when you got the book? Well, it depends, you know, if you think about,
0: you know, when you actually sort of bring it down to the essence of, is it genealogy? Um, my, my parents parted company when uh, they divorced, quite amicably, but they parted company. When I, was, I was probably about four at the time, and so I and my mother went to live with her mother, who was living with her mother. So it was mm-hmm. me, my mother, my granny and my great granny all in the one house. Uh, and I would hear the, my granny and my great granny talking about people who'd been dead for many, many years before I was ever born. And I think that's what probably got me interested because I'd be asking questions. Of course, I'm eventually told to shut up. <laughs> but I'd be asking questions. You know, who was Auntie Gertie that used to have a, a house full of glass domes with stuffed animals in them? Mm. Mm. And of course, that was in England. Yeah, that was in England. I'm tell my voice. Uh, I was born in England uh, and raised there. I came to live in Ireland when I was about twenty-two or twenty-three. Twenty-two or twenty-three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I've been more years now living in Ireland uh, than uh, living in England. Uh, my dad's family are all from the north, from Belfast and places
1: like that. And so my mother's family is entirely English. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And. In your teens, had you considered a career in genealogy? or How did that come about?
0: No, it hadn't even crossed my mind. I, um, I sort of always been interested. My surname is so unusual. I suppose that's the one that really uh, uh, grasped my attention. Well, of course, you know, actually, if i had done research on my mother's side of the family, there's so many uh, records available in England, I'd probably found an awful lot more out. But I was more interested in the Smirrell side of things. So even when I was about 17 or 18, I made my first trip on my own to to Ireland, to, to Belfast. Uh, to undertake research Um, and I mean I became quite a proficient amateur genealogist but back in those days I didn't really understand the context of the records or, or what they were about they were just bodies of information that had, you know, records that had information mm-hmm. that I was interested in. Uh, so I never really thought about even the possibility of a career in genealogy. Um, and will I say how that happened? Because it sort of includes you to a degree, uh, uh, Paul. No, don't, well, don't, I don't I, mind I, you saying. <laughs> I, I was a little speedy Gonzales that would run around uh, between the old public record office and the forecourts. Uh, this is in Dublin. Uh, um, between the old public record office and the forecourts and the general register office and that sort of building they had in, in in Lombard Street, West,
1: East, east,
0: remember, east, east. Uh, and other offices, the land valuation office and things like that. And um, and I'd, I began to sort of recognize faces. Uh, and one of the course was our old colleague, Eileen O'Byrne, mm-hmm. and uh, I got chatting with her one day. And I think she sort of misunderstood and thought I had said that I was interested in being a professional genealogist, whereas I'm quite sure I must have said that's an interesting occupation. Uh, and. Eileen was famous for sometimes getting the wrong end of the stick, and in this instance, it, uh, it worked to my advantage because uh, she reported, as you know, to you that this this young fellow called Stephen Smoley is going to come to Ireland to be a professional genealogist. And at the time, one person called Paul Gorry was looking for an assistant, mm-hmm. um, and you uh, contacted me, and and I I, I don't know I had to, th- had to think about it at the time I was working for as a housing benefits officer for Leeds City Council in Yorkshire and I was able to find out that I could have a year's break from that. So in April 1989 I came to Ireland with the thought that
1: I'd probably be here a year and then I'd just have to go back and I've been here ever since. I thought you would chucked that job, you, you you just deferred for a year. Oh yeah, well I mean well
0: it was, I had no intentions of going back but in my mind's eye I thought this is not going to work out, I'm not going to be able to make a living at this. Um, And as as you will admit yourself, you know, there isn't a great deal to be made from historical genealogy, and I very quickly uh, gravitated towards stuff for solicitors.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But early on, you uh, acquired an in depth knowledge of the history and the records of various Protestant dissenting uh, denominations in Ireland. And one of your major contributions to Irish genealogy is your book. dictionary of dublin dissent which was published in 2009 yeah, yeah um it's um it's subheading or subtitle is dublin's protestant mm-hmm. dissenting meeting houses 1660 to 1920 I remember you were doing that for at least a decade, you had oh, records all over the place. Nearly 20 years, Paul. I, I mean, I, I, we're not here to talk about Christianity, but I've always been you a know,
0: reasonably committed Christian and, uh, uh, and my background on both sides of my family is Protestant. And uh, when I came to Dublin, I very quickly joined... Uh, a Presbyterian congregation um, but through research I began to realize that th- there was very little done, uh, very little written, very little researched or known about the records of the, the uh, non-Catholic, non-Church of Ireland uh, denominations in and around Dublin. Um, so I began to write a little article which I thought might have gone into maybe the IGRS journal or something and after a while it got bigger and bigger and then I began to realise that actually it was way beyond that it needed a whole lot of research. So. I just set about gathering notes on all these congregations, Methodists, Presbyterians, Quakers, Moravians, Lutherans, Salvation Army, Plymouth Brethren, you name it. There's huge amounts of them. Um, and I sort of, every so often, I'd get so cheesed off with would fling the thing across and say, I'm not bad enough, it. I'm going to leave it now for six months. And I would. So it, it, it did take about 18 years before it was finished. And then I sort of, uh, uh, I got a sort of a push in about uh, 2007, and seven, eight to actually get it finished. <coughs> Excuse me. And I did that by approaching a publisher, thinking, "Well, if I approach a publisher, then there's a, there's a date to work forward." And I did do that, and um, uh, and it's just it, 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 people's eyes just wide. You know, I didn't even know these records existed, and I had to say, "Well, I didn't know either." But they were, they were. I mean, you know, you expect the records of the local Catholic parish to be with the presbytery. You expect, to a degree, the local Church of Ireland records to be with the rector or with the Church of Ireland Library, the RCB Library. With the non-conformists, because they were sort of, in an essence, nonconformist, we were discovering them about, because many of the congregations had closed around Dublin. So what we were finding were the records were in solicitor's offices or in private hands, maybe the grandchildren of the last person to be the secretary of the mm-hmm. congregation. We found some in um, uh, the, the, the sort of well of uh, the, 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 the pipes in an organ in one of the churches that had been disused. Other stuff stuff that had been simply sold on, um, the records for the Welsh Presbyterian Church in Dublin, and, and there was one in Talbot Street, had turned up in a record office in Anglesey. Anglesey. Anglesey, yeah. yeah. I mean, they were safe and that was it. Mm. So the whole idea was to bring all this stuff together, to have short histories about each of the congregations and to um, and to lay out the availability of the records and whether they were microfilmed or, or, or transcribed or indexed anywhere or whether they were just simply available, you know, with the local
1: custody. Well, it was a phenomenal (coughs) piece of work, definitely. Mm. I I can understand it taking that length of time. Uh, You were just about to touch on um, your professional career, um, how, as you said, you, you wouldn't really make money in genealogy here i am to, well, to, yeah, to prove it to, well, yeah. <laughs> um but you you are primarily working in probate research well you know the interesting thing is that you know years ago
0: you get these sort of slightly snooty individuals who talk about genealogists it really being professional genealogy being the preserve of well married women in their 50s and 60s earning a bit of pin money mm. uh, and 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 that just was taken on board. what people presumed um, and many of them were women of of that age group but as i discovered they were people with deep deep knowledge uh, of their their work they weren't just some fly by nights. so uh, quite quickly i began to realize you know that there was other niche areas in genealogy which weren't really you know historical stuff there was a need for the type of uh, uh, researcher who could undertake uh, work for solicitors, mainly on estates on of people who had died intestate. And that's big in England and in America. I suppose the population of Ireland is really quite small. Most people, when they die, even if they haven't got connection with their relatives, somebody somewhere knows who their relatives are. Yeah. Um, but what <coughs> I discovered was that her, um, uh, there was huge uh, need for, particularly, work in Ireland on, say, American estates, where a person had died in America, and you know they maybe had two or three brothers and sisters. They never married, or they hadn't married and had no children, and the family had literally just died out. Uh, and then I, somebody like me, would be approached and say, "Well, you know, can you work out what their uncles, who their uncles and aunts were, who their children were, and try and find the nearest next of kin?" Um, and I, I realized that I could make a, a living out of that. And it, I wasn't scratching around. It's highly pressurized work. Um, you need to be really quick and really fast and on the ball. And there's no room for error. Um, you have to be precise in what you're doing. When you say at the end of the search that the deceased's father had 10 siblings, you have to know that he had 10 siblings, not 11 or 12, and two of them missing. Because you know people who are descended from the other two may turn up at a later date, and then
1: all of your work
0: you know mm-hmm. can
1: be questioned mm-hmm. so uh are there a lot of people doing probate research in Ireland? Now? Well, when I first started out doing this, which would be
0: probate stuff in the early nineties, there was basically me and another AGI colleague David McElroy in belfast uh, and um and that was it, really. Um, of course, but, but, Eileen had been doing it before. Eileen O'Byrne I, uh, well, had been Eileen, doing research yes, for ha, yes, a exactly, company in London. Yes. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, Eileen O'Byrne had been there. Uh, Eileen O'Byrne, of course, is the person that put me in touch with you and, mm-hmm. and how I came to be in Irish research. But yeah, Eileen had been working for White Unveiled simply as a researcher for a big London firm. And eventually, actually, when Eileen decided that she wanted to retire from that, she asked me to take on that work. And I did that for a number of years for phrases they're called. I have to cough. Sorry, <clears throat> and uh, um, um, but I was also doing uh, quite a lot of independent research uh, and stuff directly for solicitors, which these days is the majority of my of my work. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got to that age in life, Paul, when I just don't need the stress. And solicitors contact me, and there's no huge pressure. I don't have competitors over my shoulders, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. I can just
1: do the work, present a report to the solicitor, and. That's the case. Well, I have to say I could never have done probate research where you are in competition with other people because it's I just wouldn't have been able to cope with the stress. I I
0: enjoyed the I won't say the cut and thrust of it, but I liked the idea of the forensic way of finding a piece of information that if it doesn't if it didn't disprove it, it might not prove it. But maybe, you know, that term triangulation, one piece of information in one record might be enough that you could use in another record to say, right, well, hold on you know, these two people must be right. So you'd follow them down uh, and maybe find that person's grandchild alive. And the thing is, you wouldn't tell them what you were looking for because you needed them not to have their mind polluted. You needed, I would need them to tell me, well, who are your grandparents? who mm. you know who their brothers and sisters are? And hopefully they would give me the information that would prove that I'd found the correct family. So in that instance, you know, you, you're, uh, when it comes to making the, re- the report for a solicitor, you'd be getting some sort of affidavit sworn uh, where you'd state, you know, that the next of kin had been located, had given uh, details about uh, their grandparents and great grandparents without ever being given any information by me to start with. So it was reliable information. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Should have gone to Specsavers. that's what the ads tell you. But for some people in India, it's not that simple. Imagine having no eye tests or glasses, You couldn't work, so you could lose your home. I'm Lisa from Specsavers, and I'm proud to help the Hope Foundation provide eye care in Kolkata. Specsavers arranged for me and my colleagues to go there and do eye tests. To date, we've given out over 11,000 pairs of glasses. Find out how we're changing people's lives for the better at specsavers.ie. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again, and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text, plus numerous state-of-the-art features
0: that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit Doro.ie. Doro phones make friends with innovation.
1: And you and your brother Kit, Kit Samiril, uh, you run a company, basically probate research is what you do. Yeah, uh, Massey & King uh, is what we call it and they're both just family names we sort of cobbled together to use
0: for the business. Um, Kit, I, I've always had a deep interest in genealogy even though when I mentioned at the beginning of this interview that I didn't really re- think of it as genealogy when I was sat at my great granny's kitchen table age 4 asking a question about who were <laughs> the people in the photographs. My brother Kit didn't have that type of interest in genealogy, but he, he likes puzzles. and he likes, he likes finding bits of information and putting them together. And uh, uh, so uh, uh, I think it was maybe about 1996 or 7, something like that, he had decided that maybe he might come and work with me in Dublin. So he did. And, so again, it was, as early as yeah, that, really. Yeah. He, 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 he was on the same situation I had. He thought, well, I'll come for a year and see how it goes. And now
1: he's married with a child and still living in Dublin. yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah but then your company were approached by a television company for the um dead money yeah uh, a production company um i I think
0: you know genealogies things that people are actually interested in i suppose TV producers, you know, like anybody, they have an interest in a particular subject. And this particular TV uh, pr- uh, producer had, had really got an interest in genealogy. And I was thinking all the time about how does this thing work where, uh, you know, uh, next of kin have to be found for uh, solicitors, etc. And he'd sort of cast his net around uh, in various ways. And he came up and contacted myself and Kit. And when well, we meet him, so we did, we met him. And he sort of put this notion of, it, of TV programming, and we didn't think it would go anywhere. Um, but sure enough, you know, about, I think, three to four years later, it finally came about, uh, and he had approached RTE. RTE had shown an interest in this particular thing, and then what happened was some programme that had in the schedule for six months' time, seven months' time, had had to be scrapped for some reason. I don't know why. I don't know why, but we were told <laughs> if, you, if you can get the TV show done, six episodes oh. to be broadcast <laughs> in the seven months, we can go. So um, we left from seeing RTE and with the, this independent. TV producer, and afterwards outside, he said, Now, guys, it's up to you. Can, can you do this? And I had to say to him, Well, no, it's up to you. Do you think we can do it? But I said, Yeah, it'll be a couple of days a week. It ended up nearly being seven days a week of in and out and recording and, and having to keep detailed lists of. I mean, you would shoot scenes for different episodes in such a way that you'd always have to know what clothes you were wearing. So we had to keep these lists of oh, which yeah. shirts, which jackets, and make sure you got the wrong. And there was one episode I do remember that so. ran. Um, I'd had to pull my my uh, the, the sleeve of my jacket down a bit, because I realised that it was the wrong shirt. It looked okay at <laughs> the collar, but the, the cuff was a completely different colour. We had to cover that up. Uh, but yeah, it, we 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 over six episodes, we told the story of searches we had done for. Um, searching out next of kin where individuals had died intestate and there was no immediate next of kin. And, you know, I mean, it, it was a real good snapshot. we got the sort of like the really poor families from the west of Ireland who had gone to America. We've got folks from Dublin who had sort of intermarried, um, uh, you know, between a Presbyterian family and a Roman Catholic family and had sort of slightly gone their separate ways. And One had climbed up the social ladder, the other one had dropped down. Uh, and one of the episodes was really interesting to show that this family had cousins, and here we had photographs of the Presbyterian family in Dublin, and they were very affluent. And here we were able to show an image of uh, a poor house record, you know, a workhouse record mm. in London with the cousins, and mm. they were just destitute. Mm. Uh, and it was it was an interesting. We, we we linked to India, to to America. I had to go out to Boston to do some filming, which was I really that, good. I, I remember that. And my, my brother at the time he had gone that very same week to do some. Filming in France, and I was in sort of reasonably nice weather, a bit cool, but reasonably nice weather. In in Boston, on my phone in a shop, talking to Kit, who was said he was in some small village, and it was so cold. It was Baltic. The fa- fountain in the middle of the village was just frozen solid, sort of going up, and it, it had frozen. And uh, it was great fun, I have to say, and it and it really helped tell the story because the one thing I had said to the producers, I didn't want the story to be anything like other T V programmes which were all about cut and thrust and you know pull the rug from under competitive years. I don't want that. Yeah, I just want quite cheap. The, they were cheap things, and I, I yeah. wanted to tell the story of the different types of people. I mean you know, I won't, go, I won't go off on a tangent, but you know, you mentioned Ireland, and of course, it's all the you know the Catholic people, etc., etc. Well, I wanted to show Ireland. You know, in the past, wasn't all just about that. There was all sorts of different strains mm. and types of families from different you know social classes and different backgrounds uh, and different stages in, in their life. And I think over the six episodes, uh, we succeeded
1: with that. Now, I thought it was terrific. Um, they they were extremely interesting uh, subjects, and. Very well presented. I thought that it was a great series. It's a pity that it was only the one. Yeah, it,
0: yeah. Well, it, it was just unfortunate, uh, but uh, there was just an illness with the producer, and it, it didn't uh, uh, didn't go any mm-hmm. further after that. And then, you know, to be truthful as well, it was a huge amount of work. Um, so, so I'd imagine. You know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. It was highly enjoyable, but it was really,
1: really, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, fast and furious. And. You know, these things are repeated and repeated on television. I haven't seen it. You'd imagine it would come up on, I don't know, a history channel or something like that. Yeah, well, it was repeated.
0: It was shown, first of all, on RTE2 at some sort of slot, which was like okay, but not great. Uh, and I think RTE hadn't really taken on board just how interest, uh, how much uh, 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 much uh, interest it would be in been. Yeah. And we were able to look at some sort of funny statistics site on the internet that told you how many viewings. And it was massive. Uh, and we'd only just got to the end of the, the series being shown and the producer came back to say, you know, listen guys, to me and my brother, it's going to be broadcast again on RTE1 at seven o'clock in the evening, you know, mm, which mm. is prime time for something like that. and. You know, of course, most people just thought, "Oh, it's a second series." Yeah, <laughs> It wasn't a second, and then it was repeated two more times after that. Um, but I haven't seen it uh, in. it Must well, it's a decade now, isn't it? Since it was when was it? Uh, it was. Yeah. It was shown in April and
1: May, twenty twelve. Oh, yeah. as recent yeah. as that? Yeah, as recent as that. It's that. a decade ago. Yeah. Mm. Um, well, for the for decades and decades, part of the fabric of genealogy worldwide was the volunteer uh, work done by professionals as well as amateurs Um, you know genealogical societies conferences etc etc they really lived on uh, the 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 voluntary work of people but sad to say since big business got involved about 20 years ago um, that seems to have been seems to have gone out of genealogy Um, and genealogy now attracts a lot of people who are takers rather than givers, or mayfainers, as we we might say, Mm. in Ireland. Mm. Um, You've been a giver uh, for decades in relation to um, organisations like, well, AGI Accredited Genealogists Ireland, um, the Council of Irish Genealogical Organisations, and the Irish Genealogical Research Society, or the IGRS as we know it. Well, I'm sure you've found it rewarding over the years to, to, you know, what you have got out of being a giver. Um, but it has also interfered with your your own work as a as a genealogist. Um, and it's still, as Paul,
0: uh, I'm still, you know, highly involved with the Irish Natural Research Society, which, you know, I don't know whether the listeners know, but that's the oldest society dedicated to Irish genealogy, founded in 1936. It's a learned society, but it's open to all. Um, But, you know, I'm still very much involved with that. And on a daily basis between, you know, dealing with the files, I'm dealing with solicitors. I'm also fielding questions in relation to uh, my position as chair of the society and trying to deal with aspects of uh, of the progression uh, of us. Um, We really have sort of modernised that society. In more recent years but you, you mentioned about you know the the, the volunteerism aspect of us i mean i want to be fair and say you know that there's no denying that the input of big business has had you know some benefits many benefits actually because it's allowed um much greater access to material than would have been in the past but the downside is that it now it now means that that certain classes of records are now being promoted and dealt with and and uh, administered online by a business rather than an archive uh, and the descriptions that you might have got by archivists in the past describing the 1851 census or the 1939 national register for England and Wales etc you know would have been quite detailed and now it's really very poor uh, and, I, and I'm not saying that to criticize companies like Ancestry Find My Past, because you know they're providing a niche in the market but the one thing I'd say that's, that's the downside of all of this is that <clears throat> excuse me is that genealogy in Ireland and, and worldwide, actually, it's become a lucky dip. You you just type a name into a box and it pulls the information out. Now, somebody like me and you would be able to interrogate that information and, you know, we get, say, 20 results and you and I would be able to go through and say, no, 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 oh, here's your man, that's the right one. Your average Joe Soap is just saying, Oh, it's come up and told me that these 10 entries or five entries are relevant. And the next thing, they've been taken and plonked in their family tree. And then six months later, uh, another person who's sort of half searching the same family, they come along and they type in the same information. They find this other person's family tree. They think, Oh, that's great. I'll copy that into mine. And it's, it's, it's like a, an octopus tentacles that have
1: just diluted. The integrity of of genealogy and i well, think that, that has yeah, to be that's addressed. that's what you know as far as i'm concerned the last 20 years have uh, genealogy has been damaged by that damaged by big businesses because they're only interested in profit they're not interested in it as a subject and it has de- definitely been dumbed down and um you know um, they are definitely responsible for that but also the type of people who are getting involved in genealogy now i would say professionally as well. I don't mean all people who are getting involved, but there are an awful lot of people who just think this is a, a way of making money. And they don't particularly as you say, they're they're looking at stuff online. They're not really engaged with the original records. Yeah, that that's been, you know, one of the issues really that you now people undertaking
0: professional genealogy these days Unlike you and I, for instance, they've only ever really known access online, and again, it's like you know, pop a name in it, and up comes some up comes you know the results, and I think that I, I, that definitely is one of the reasons why. Our own professional association is so important because you know members of the public can can come to AGI in Ireland or one of the other sister bodies in, in around different parts of the of the world, and they can be they can be sure that the the, the they're about to employ has has gone through some process of of obtaining credentials, so it's clear that they know what they're doing. Um, and there are many more uh, who don't do that, and some of them are really good, but I have to say some of them are really poor, and people pay
1: money and get. Dribble. Mm-hmm. But getting back to the volunteerism as well, because that's been taken out by by big business and greed, basically coming into mm-hmm. genealogy. Um, why are you particularly uh, attached to the IGRS, the Irish Genealogical Research Society? Because you've put well over a decade. Yeah into it. You, you, you've been chairman since 2010 and you yeah. were involved before that. I was involved as the chair of the Ireland branch um, before that, uh, quite
0: a number of years and I joined the IJRS in the early 90s. I suppose, you know, they, they were a group of friendly people um, mm-hmm. and what was interesting was as well that looking at the, the, the IGS has always been like two 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 well in my time anyway, like mm-hmm. two parts to it. There was the the main body with the main council which sat in London, we all joked, the colonial office you know and there were many members in it with grand titles uh, uh, and and then there was the, the more ordinary uh, branch the island branch which had very uh, uh, um, clever people who knew a lot about research but from a different social background and and it was it, it, it really, the thing is you think that would drive people apart it didn't it actually melded them together um, and the quality of the knowledge of, of the general membership of the IGRS was always that it's been able to produce a scholarly journal year after year after year, and, and, and the size of it did go down for a number of years, uh, but then we sort of revitalised things, and now we have to turn people away from the amount of material that uh, they want to submit. Um, but I, I'm not in any way knocking you know, your ordinary sort of little family history society or, or local history society that might produce something that wouldn't be a scholarly scholarly, but there's also room for a scholarly journal uh, and the IGRS produces a fantastic scholarly journal. Uh, And we also have um, a huge collection of manuscript material um, that came from uh, researchers uh, taken from records before the Great Fire in 1922, 100 years ago. and they were people who were members of the igrs and when they died, thankfully, they gave their records to us, and we have this fantastic body of material. Um, I suppose you know I might say, well, you know, could I have been you know just as happy in another family history society? Who knows? But I just feel that the that the the there has to be a stand made that there is definitely room in genealogy still for amateur organisations and I'm determined that the IGRS with its sort of history and heritage and culture etc is not going to be another victim uh, where you know in a few years time it disappears
1: and records go and and that would be really sad Mm -hmm. yeah and so many societies have gone because of the way genealogy has changed but for me the IGRS is the original uh, for Ireland. Formed in 1936. Well, our yeah. colleague John Gwennam, we you know, nicknamed it the great granddaddy of all Irish family history
0: societies. And mm. I mean, he mm. has a way sometimes of coming up with lines that just say what it needs to say. And he, he said that and immediately when I'd seen it written down, I thought, oh, oh, oh we're going to quote that. Because I
1: mean, he was absolutely right. Yeah. It's the great granddaddy of all Irish family history societies. But when I started in genealogy, it was the only yeah. society to join. Well, yeah. actually, the North of Ireland Family History Society was formed the year that I started working in genealogy. But... Um, yeah there are others that have come along but I, I, yeah I feel uh, an emotional attachment to the IGRS for, yeah. for, for those reasons and of course you were elected a fellow of the IGRS in 2007 before you started doing most of your work and then again more recently you were made a fellow of the Society of Genealogists in London Yeah, know I got I got a letter in the post oh,
0: whatever number of years is it, 15 years ago, I can't remember when I was made a Fellow of the IJS. 2007. 2007, I had no notion of this, not an idea this was going to happen, and I opened this letter, (coughs) excuse me, and I I was, I had to sit and look at it and stare at it, and and I just thought to myself, well, you know, I worked as a... um, a housing benefits office in Leeds City Council, and if if I hadn't have had that conversation with Alina Byrne by chance all those years, and if she hadn't have just maybe misconstrued slightly what I said, I could still be working for Leeds City Council, maybe you know still processing housing benefit claims and being perfectly happy. But you know my life has taken this particular uh, route, and and there I was looking at this letter saying that I'd been made a fellow of the IGRS. Well, <laughs> it was just, and then um, uh, um, in twenty was it 2019 I think um, something about I got it, yeah. yeah when I was made a fellow of the Society of genealogists and uh, I that that was an email that came through uh, and I, I, as you know Paul, I had a pretty rough time with various different things happening in my life at the time uh, and Roy and I my husband we were on a, a, a plane just arriving into Berlin and we plane to come down to land, the, I'd opened the phone and looked at my messages, and there was this thing, Society of Genealogists, and I knew it wasn't their newsletter, and they opened it, and there, I was gobsmacked, absolutely <laughs> gobsmacked, I mean, of course it's an incredible honour, I was very pleased, but I just, again, That's I just great thought to myself, that, been, uh, yeah, of course, of course it is, and I just thought, well, you know, I mean, what have I done to deserve that, and here I am, you know, this just sort of... Young lad who came to live in Ireland to take up genealogy and might have maybe a, that was a
1: long time ago.
0: You've yeah. done a hell of a lot. Of yeah, yeah, what I mean it. is this. You know, I'd started out yeah. that way, and this yeah. is the point I got to, and I was, you know, proud to a degree, you know, but but obviously just
1: humbled as well by it. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And you've done voluntary work on in other directions, not necessarily with the IGRS or, or whatever. Um, and a lot of that was behind the scenes, so people wouldn't know about it. But for instance, you were involved in. Well, you were one of the people who 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 pushed uh, for the opening of the nineteen thirty nine National Register for England and Wales. I mean, that could be still hidden away somewhere if it wasn't for you. Well, the. the- the, the, it, was, there was, it wasn't widely
0: known, but it was possible at that time to write into the National Health Service in England and Wales and you could give them the information, a name and a date of birth. And if the person was either known to be deceased or born more than 100 years ago, they would search the register and they would give you the information. Uh, and then one particular time I wrote uh, and asked for something and they said, oh, no, we decided that we're not going to do that anymore. Uh, we don't, we're, not, we're not obliged to do it. I was absolutely gobsmacked. And I looked further into it and I thought, this is nonsense. Um, there was there was not, not going to in great detail, but this national register was taken at the onset of the war. Uh, I was in, just going to UK. ask you to explain yeah, yeah. that. Yeah. It, it, it was it, Second World yeah, War. Yeah, the, yeah, the Second World War. Twenty ninth of September, nineteen thirty nine. It was taken and rather like a census. Forms were brought out and they were filled in, and they wanted to know people's name, organised by address, their name, their date of birth, their occupation, uh, if they were male, if they had previously uh, had uh, war service, etc. And uh, these forms were never, there was nothing on the forms unlike the census that ever suggested that the information was secret forever ever a day. So I decided to complain to, about that. In fact, this service had now been taken away to the, I think it was the, probably the Data Protection Commission, whatever it's called in, in England and Wales. And uh, um, uh, it took some time, but I got a, a letter back to say that they had found in my favour and that the information I had asked for, I should be given. Um, and very shortly after that, uh, it then turned out that they opened negotiations with the public record office, who obviously would eventually hold this material, um, and and they then uh, did a deal with one of the big genealogy companies to scan uh, that register and index, etc. And and I looked again then at the, at the situation in Scotland and Northern Ireland, and Scotland's a bit of a quagmire. It's organised in a, in a bizarre way, but it is possible to get searches done. Mm-hmm. And again in Northern Ireland, uh, the National Register for Northern Ireland had been used, or I should say that at the outset of uh, at the beginning of the National Health Service across the United Kingdom, it was decided that these registers created in 1939 could be used as the basis of the NHS Central Index and then because anybody who had been born after 1939 had been added into this database and it was kept right up right up to date up to the 1950s. so it, but in Northern Ireland it was decided they didn't need to use the actual registers. They could use the card that created to these. So, you know, um, the, the registers had been consigned and, and, and put, I think, maybe for some years in the basement of Stormont uh, and had lain there for a long time. Uh, and then I heard off the record from somebody in that this stuff was found and there was discussion about whether it should be thrown, whether it was needed. <laughs> And I mean, but thankfully, you know, somebody, you know, with some nouse in Prony had looked in and said, this has got names and addresses and dates of birth. There's no way it can be thrown out. Um, so <clears throat> unfortunately, this, the index that was created to the National Register for Northern Ireland w- was not retained. <laughs> So they, they can only do searches in certain ways by giving them addresses. Now uh, it's quite an awkward thing, um, but yeah, the, the the so by doing that, it was possible to um, to allow greater, wider public access to a resource that hadn't been made available properly
1: before then. Mm-hmm. And another thing that's very important, well, for posterity, it's, it's very important is uh, the extra information added to death registration in Ireland. Yeah. And that was, was it through Seagull that you did that? Or uh,
0: yeah, being I, the I was, uh,
1: Council of Irish Genealogical Organisations? Yeah,
0: when I was Executive Liaison Officer for, for and um, Well, in my own line of work, I um, had to, I would be contacted by solicitors and I'd got to find out what happened to, you know, the deceased uncles and aunts. And invariably, they were born so far back that their death records um, uh, were of, the uh, their death records had the same information on them that had been, re- had been, had um, been, Uh, um, recorded since uh, civilization began in 1864, and and which didn't include dates of birth, didn't include the place of birth, didn't include the father's name or the mother's name. Uh, And the problem was that, you know, (laughs) any amount of records would do. I remember I would have a a lunch sometimes with, again, talking about Ali and we'd both been in the G.O. room, and just say, oh, I don't know, Stephen. I've got five Cornelius Murphys here. I don't know which is the right one. She said, I'm going to have to send them to the client and they can decide themselves whether any of them are relevant because Mm. it was just an impossibility. Um, And whereas in England and Wales, since June 1969, um, death records had included the deceased's date and place of birth and the maiden surname of a married woman. Now, it didn't include the parents' names, Mm. but it was enough information that in the majority of cases, you could be sure that you could match a death record with a birth record. Uh, uh, and you know, like I always say, genealogical snap. Um, and in Ireland, that simply wasn't the case, and it was going on and on and on. And I, and I discovered the huge amounts of records of, of
1: errors in the records. But the death registration uh, that you managed to get uh, implemented, uh, the, the the extra information on them that. So that applies to all of Ireland, doesn't
0: it? It does, yeah, at different dates. Um, it took quite some doing, but we managed to convince the General Register Office in Dublin that it was important that uh, each deceased person's date and place of birth and their father's and mother's name should be recorded. And initially they had said, oh, that's outside the requirements of civil registration. So it took really quite some effort for us to get them to take that on board. Uh, and then um, that was in about 2005, I think, 2006 that began. And since then... Technically, every record should have that information because there
1: will be the t- some that don't. Um, I registered my mother's death in 2006 and it was the first time that I encountered it. I, yeah. I was able to give the information of her parents' names and all that sort yeah. of thing. You know? Well, I, I mean, many people I know who know I had a role in that
0: I'll come up to me afterwards and said how much it meant for them to know that their their relative was now not to be just lost to history because there was enough information now to know that that, that, that was a name. And that had been the issue before that. You know, once the registrations went beyond living memory. There was nobody to tell you oh, this is the right record, that's the yeah. right record. Yeah. So that was in about two thousand and five. Implemented in two thousand and six in the Republic, and then we tackled uh, the Stormont Assembly uh, myself and another AGI colleague, uh, Rob Davison, in about twenty ten. And I th- that and they, they accepted that straight away. They recognised mm. that this was something of some value. Uh, and in fact, it was rather funny because the Registrar General for Northern Ireland in the discussion in Stormont had. Said that it had been working well since 1855 in scotland <laughs> <laughs> so they, they were happy to implement it themselves and so since about 10, 10 2010 2011 something like that uh, all death registrations in northern ireland so the throughout the british isles britain and ireland and wales and scotland
1: the only place that doesn't include parents names now is england and wales and i've gotten them mm. in my sites. right very good god help them well anyway uh, i was just going to say one more thing because we we've spoken for quite a long time um, the 1926 census for the free state which is now the republic of ireland that was a long battle that unfortunately you didn't win yeah. well we so we we, we It was like a, you know, they say that a war is is
0: divided into battles. We won some battles, but we just didn't win the war in the end. But, you know, sometimes you could sort of say, well, did we win the war? Because there had been no real clear policy by the state or uh, um, by the relevant authorities to ensure that the returns of the 1926 census would be uh, available. Uh, uh, after they became you know 100 years had elapsed from their creation but the bitter fight we had which we nearly won we nearly won to have the 1926 census opened early uh it it, it didn't it didn't get that done even though there was serious talk cabinet level but what it did do was ensure uh, that the national archives is getting the uh, the wherewithal with the finance and personnel to to um, conserve, to digitise and to index that census so that it should be become available
1: at the end of 2026 or the beginning of 2027. 2027. Yeah, Yeah. Well, Listen, um, I think that's about as much time as we have, uh, we've run over time I think really, but anyway it's very enjoyable and thank you very much for coming to Bolting Glass to have the chat. Yeah, well thank you, it was nice to have a, a trip down memory lane at all those different things that I've been involved in. Yeah, honestly, well yeah. For me as well, as I've known you since you started in the, was a wee professional. <laughs> <laughs> Not that we. Anyway, thank you very much, Stephen. You're very welcome. Thank you, Paul. Finally, I'd like to thank Senior Times for making Irish Gen Pod part of their collection of podcasts. Also, many thanks to my series producer, Conor O'Hagan, and to my audio supervisor today, John Hughes. Do tune in again.
0: Sponsored by Expressway. With MyExpressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations.